Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Clay Rutledge. He's a behavioral scientist, writer, consultant, and professor of psychology at North Dakota State University. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. A lot of your work is about meaning. What do you mean by meaning? Okay, well, there is a technical definition of meaning that involves several subcomponents, such as, you know, longing for consistency. So all animals want to make sense of their environment at some level, right? To navigate the world, it has to be, you know, predictable. Um, so there's that kind of what you might call lower level um, meaning. But humans are uniquely self-reflective, right? So we can talk to each other right here and we can imagine each other's thoughts and feelings as a way to sort of communicate. And so because we have that, you know, that capacity for self-reflection, we don't just want to make sense of the world. We want to make sense of our own lives. So we have kind of this internal effort to find meaning and that makes us more goal directed. So our our efforts to find meaning become very personal and very much oriented toward, towards the future and living a life that feels like we have some sense of purpose. So that's a, the other big component of, of meaning is is some kind of purpose in life. Is this similar to like is there a narrative element to this that it's like you you want to be able to tell a story about your life? Yeah, definitely. We're narrative creatures in a lot of ways. We're storytellers. I mean, culture, we're, you know, some psychologists and sociologists have pointed out that humans are, are social animals, but that doesn't actually make us unique. There's a lot of social animals. What makes us unique, perhaps, is that we're cultural animals. And part of culture is storytelling and making sense of our own personal stories, but also importantly, connecting our stories to larger Stories. So we want to feel some sense of connection to family and to our ancestors. And we also think a lot about the future. We want our story to to continue on. We want some kind of transcendence in some way. So if you're trying to so you're not you're not just a philosopher or you you're philosophical, but you're a psychologist, so there's some empirical element to Correct. what you do. Yeah. So yeah. do you walk around and just say, Does your life mean anything? And then do that 10 times and then write a paper on it. <laughs> Luckily, <laughs> I don't walk around and do that. But you're, you're, you're on to something in the sense that, yeah, what we're trying to do, which is actually a relatively recent enterprise within, you know, within the last couple decades, you started to see some psychologists start to take these ideas from philosophy and say, this is all great that we're talking about this and we're thinking about it. And, you know, there's lots of insights to be found from that. But we want to start quantitating, you know, quantifying this stuff. And so, you know, in the last, you know, really, it started in the. There were some people doing some stuff before, but really, it started in the late 1980s that some empirical psychologists said, "Well, let's start coming up with ways to test in the laboratory using more contemporary experimental methods how people approach existential questions." So, for example, like what would be uh, one of those tests? Like how would it work? Well, when I, you know, when I first started grad school, which was interestingly um, within weeks of the September 11th attacks, which actually had a big influence on on my work, what we were doing in the lab is is focusing on the topic of death awareness. So humans are in this unique predicament of, like other organisms, you know, we want to survive. We're oriented towards self preservation and try to do things to stay alive. Um, but unlike other organisms, we have this ability to reflect on the fact that we're, we're going to die. So we know this goal for survival is ultimately going to be unsuccessful, that at some point we have to die. What are the implications of that awareness of mortality? So we were bringing people into the lab and looking at this by 
um, randomly assigning people to different conditions and having some of them think about death. Right. So it sounds pretty, pretty, you know, we were doing some pretty edge lord <laughs> research, right? And then seeing, you know, the effects that has. And, and, and what research has shown is that when people think about topics, heavy existential topics like death, not, not just death, but also the meaning, meaning in life and things like that, it orients them towards more, um, wanting to defend or cling to the culture and social structures that give their life some sense of order and certainty and meaning. And so when when meaning is on the mind or when meaning-relevant topics like death are on the mind, people um, become more motivated and more driven to the sources that give their life some sort of existential structure. When we're measuring this broadly though, so you, you write about um, the loss of meaning and you, you attribute a lot of the societal ills that we see today to a declining sense of meaning among a lot of – Americans, but that sort of thing. How do you how do you get to the point where you can say like there is a declining sense of meaning in in broader populations? Suppose like the specific of you know we can we can see how people yeah, act yeah. when they talk about death because I mean I can imagine that stuff like if you ask someone you know like how much meaning in your life it's similar to like some of the critiques of say happiness research that mm -hmm. the way people answer is highly like culturally contingent or just you know so someone could be objectively happier but you know it's it's rude to say that you're super happy and so you kind of keep it yeah. a little mum or so how do you how do you get at it without getting stuck in those sorts of cultural concerns yeah no that that's a real challenge um because all of these issues in, in psychology do involve trying to get at answers that are mediated by the human individual human mind right so you do have the you know these challenges there are all sorts of methodological ways you can get at it but but it is an issue of you, you hit on an issue of scaling up from the lab which is important to do that work because that's really getting at the mechanisms like you know the psychological mechanisms and you can control for a bunch of confounds that it's hard to do in, in other social scientific research. But then what you do when you're scaling up is you know you can't necessarily easily make an airtight case but you can you know prosecute a bunch of different alternative explanations, right? And you can see if there's something unique about people's perceptions of meaning, as biased as they may be, that predicts, you know, a bunch of behavioral or other types of social health outcomes. So, for instance, we know that when people's perceptions of their life are meaningful is a predictor of, of mortality. Like people who don't feel like they have a purpose in life are just more likely to die, right? You can measure, there's studies I've looked at this, you can measure that and um, their perceptions of meaning and then look like 15 years later and see who's alive and who's not. Um, of course, it's a, it's a risk factor for very specific types of death like suicide and risky behaviors that make you more likely to die like drug and alcohol abuse and just risk taking in general. Um, but then the challenge, you know, like you're pointing out, the challenge is that Life is really, really complicated. So I wouldn't go so far as to say, um, I think what you're suggesting, I'm saying that most of our problems, you know, in society or most of the issues we're facing are about meaning. But I do think meaning is an important part of the story because, and, you know, this is something I, I'm going to talk about at the Cato event, um, but because meaning is a motivational and kind of self-regulatory force that it's not just that when people lack meaning they're vulnerable to depression and anxiety 
when they have meaning, they're better able to take care of themselves and they're more outward focused. They're more willing to help their community and they're more optimistic. And so regardless of how people get meaning, it seems to be an important part of how societies regulate themselves. When we talk about these things on the big scale, as Aaron said, societal ills, um, there's been a lot of discussion of that recently. Trump might be both a cause and effect of that discussion. Uh, but if, in my life, we, it seems like at many different times we've had – we've always had these conversations that were very much like things were much better yeah. then and everything is really bad now. And I, and I don't think that you ever see the good times often when they're in the good times. And there's some biases, some institutional to like to, – to point out what's going wrong rather than what's going right. Uh, I think in the 1890s, they were probably like, man – Things have never been as soulless and horrible as they are today. You know, the 1870s were really great. And and so can we really trust our perceptions of this? I mean, some people, you know, they're, they're just reasoning anecdotally. Other people, we have we have a nostalgia mechanism and we have – I think we now even have a nostalgia machine that is constantly turning, like Stranger Things. Right? Stranger Things is just what popped in my head. That's a nostalgia machine. So they just want to put us back there. I'm a child of the 80s and be like, remember how cool it was? And so, you know, maybe maybe we should try and resist those biases by like looking for the good things too that are happening, and not just trying to say this is the most uh, existential malaise time ever. No, I, I I totally agree with that. And one of the but what's funny is you know these issues are these challenges are bidirectional because people are it's when people feel meaningful that they have a more optimistic worldview, and that optimism feeds feeds meaning. So you can get in these kind of vicious circles in which people feel like nothing's going well and then that mentality makes them feel like there's no meaning and then that lack of meaning makes them feel like nothing's going well. And so I totally agree. I mean, one of the, I think one of the things we need to do is focus not just on – well, like people do here at Cato with the human progress, focus not just on all these other indicators of how things are getting better in terms of education and health and, and freedom – but also focus on existential progress, you know, ways that people have more opportunities than they ever did to pursue what's meaningful in their lives. And we don't – I would agree we don't do a very good job of that because there is some some bias towards, you know, as you were pointing out, like always, always kind of looking back and thinking things are better. But there are also some seemingly objective things such as the suicide rate, mm-hmm. um, although I'm not sure how – accurate the suicide rate was measured probably at different times in the past, but at least in the last 20 years, it yeah. seemed to have gone up. Yeah. We have like a depression rate, but that seems less accurate as maybe the suicide rate because depression itself has some mission creep, yeah. some, some yeah. creep category creep to it. Yeah. Um, what other indications do you think? Are there, are there anything else that sort of shows that, that things are maybe there is some sort of bubbling up existential malaise going on? Yeah, I think some of the strongest indicators to me are what you know what I would call social health, and so you there's a number of unique indicators that people don't just feel lonelier than maybe they used to, but um, report having fewer social connections and fewer people that they they feel like they can turn to, and you can broaden that out a little bit to just look in general at. Social trust. I think the the Pew Research Center um, said something like I can't remember the exact percent now. Forty some percent of millennials fall into the category of what they call low trusters, which is they just have a general cynical view of people, like that people are out for themselves; they're not out to help you. And so I think that's um, 
that's an indicator uh, 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 of poor existential health that people don't feel like they 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 need each other and that they can trust each other or that they have a moral duty to others. How do we get to there, though? Like, how do? Why is it that? So I'm Gen X, and Gen X is like characteristically our defining trait was ironic detachment, right? Which is kind of a low yeah. social trust sort of thing. But like, but now millennials, I guess, are and Gen Z are even worse. But like, so what's the what's the mechanism by which we get to this world of lower meaning? What's happening that's driving us in that direction? Well, my argument is it's largely individualism that we have a culture that is um, extremely individualistic to the point of which, and you know, this started decades ago, but to the point of which we've we've built even within. So, in my, I grew up. I'm a child of of the '80s. I'm also a a, a Gen Xer, and. You know, it was in my lifetime that we really started to see the self-esteem movement, you know, come about where everything was about turning inwards and being who you want to be. And you don't need other people's approval. You know, you can do anything you want. Um, the the participation trophy idea that if we just boost everyone's self-esteem, if we just make everyone more confident and self-assured, they'll be able to just live the life of, of their dreams. And a lot of that... It's just not accurate in terms of how the human brain is wired for social connection and for interdependence. And so I think a lot of it is we are um, overly confident in our ability to make our own meaning frameworks. And that's not really how our species works. Some of these questions, I, I find this kind of psychology fascinating because it almost inherently has a political element to it in mm -hmm. some sense because you're describing – the things that people are striving for, what what they value, and that will tend to the political. So if a if a Marxist psychologist is they there's a bias often there where they say, oh, I'm gonna diagnose societal ills and they're gonna mm -hmm. be like, and I did all this stuff and oh my God, it was capitalism. And like, yeah, what a coincidence. And yeah, yeah. and if you're and then on the other side where they so everything, you know, here are the things I like as a psychologist and the reason people are unhappy is because because they don't like those things that they should like kind of thing big government is what's causing people to get stuck yeah so yeah so so libertarians can flip that around and be mm -hmm. like oh the problem no is is too much big government and not enough entrepreneurship and things like this uh so you made you made a the phrase individualism mm -hmm. which has a political component or people like attack here at Cato, they'll be like, oh, you're just a bunch of individualists and mm -hmm. atomistic is the word that's used all the time for libertarians that we mm -hmm. we want everyone to be separated from family and community and stuff, which which is untrue. Correct, uh, yeah. uh, and we want we want to have strong communities and stuff. So so if we're trying to analyze this when it when it starts to tend toward the political, do you see that in your field where people are filling in gaps with what are obviously their political beliefs about what's causing societal problems and stuff, as opposed to sort of focusing more on the empirics? Yeah, I think so. I mean, for for instance, one of the things that's fascinating in academia is a lot of the people you see celebrating cultural diversity, the argument they're making is towards other cultures is that culture is really important. It's an important force. It's, you know, people's we need to be mindful of people's traditions and cultural practices. And oftentimes those same people are very eager to dismantle our culture, <laughs> right? And so it's it's a, it's a weird, and I think again, I think that's an individualistic thing. Liberals tend to be more individualistic 
than conservatives, and liberals are overrepresented in academia. And so when I say individualistic, I don't mean it. Um, there, you're right. There is some correlation with with political stuff. But when I say individualistic, I don't mean it as in we shouldn't, you know, champion individual rights and liberties. You know, I mean it more as a as a as a cultural um, idea that in more collectivist societies they privilege group harmony over individual opinions. They're more likely to be quiet and say, "Well, what matters is we get along." Right? In more individualistic societies, we're taught more to focus on ourselves, and you can even see this in clinical psychology. Like, you know, our our entire therapy apparatus is built on this idea of talk therapy that you should be thinking about your feelings all the time and that we need to and we need to you know correct your cognitions about things which doesn't always translate well to other more interdependent cultures that think more about their their social duties or their social roles and I'm a champion of of individualism and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for I was able to move away from family and pursue my own goals as a function uh, of this, but what I th- but I think it's also important that we recognize both the the strengths of any idea and the vulnerabilities that it might create because we need to manage those vulnerabilities. If we if we really believe in freedom, if we really believe in, in liberty, we need to understand the vulnerabilities it helps create in order to um, in order to preserve freedom. Because my argument is ultimately what happens is if. People are so disconnected and, and so alienated and feel so meaningless that um, they can't really structure their lives in a productive way. They will become ad- attracted to extreme ideologies, right? And then that's a threat to freedom. How uniform – so there's basically since individualism, cultural individualism has, brings benefits and has costs. Mm-hmm. But the distribution of those benefits and costs, how mm-hmm. uniform is it? So we could imagine like – there might be certain extreme people who just absolutely thrive on whatever the highest level of possible individualism might be. And there might be people on the other end who deeply – like the only way that they can really function, be happy, have meaning is to be deeply embedded in an incredibly strict um, and yeah. culturally and like socially bound society. But most of us fall somewhere in the middle. But how bunchy is that? Like are we talking that kind of all of us – or most of us have been hurt a little bit by individualism but have gained or is it that there's large chunks that have lost a lot and large chunks that have gained a lot? Yeah, that's a that's a very good and important question and difficult <laughs> one to answer. One I've thought about a lot and one, you know, when I talk to, you know, more libertarian groups which I seem to do a lot and in part because, you know, I'm I you know, I would consider myself fairly sympathetic or libertarian minded is that you have to be able to step outside yourself and realize that libertarians are kind of a weird <laughs> weird group in a lot of ways, right? That's not how most people th- um, think about the world. And and that's fine, right? There's all sorts of different groups of people. Um, but, you know, as a, a, as a behavioral scientist, one of the things we need to be able to, you know, I need to be able to do is step outside of my way of thinking and saying, well, just because I don't need these structures or just because I don't care about this or that doesn't mean that's how everyone else thinks. And so I think that's a that's a really good point. There are all, all sorts of individual differences we need to take into consideration, and these things are on a continuum. They're not even categorical. So libertarians might be really really high in comfort with uncertainty, perhaps, or you know, really high in more deliberative, rational types of thought processes. Um, 
but you know, but there are other people that are really low, but a lot of people are just kind of in the middle or a combination of different things. And and also there might be some some social and structural forces that people benefit from. And this gets back to the problems with the self-report type of psychology. There might be things that people benefit from that they don't appreciate. So it's easy. I'll give one example that I think connects to religion. It's easy for a non-religious person to say, I don't need religion. It doesn't do anything for me. In fact, it'd be better if the whole enterprise just disappeared um, because I'm not religious, right? But you don't know how much benefit you're receiving indirectly from religion perhaps. And if that doesn't sound easy, it sounds hard to comprehend, there's, a, there's another example to think about, the police. So I could live in a really nice neighborhood and have a nice security system in my house and think, I hate the police. There's, you know, they're just, they cause nothing but problems. And, you know, I think, and you actually see some of this like abolish prisons kind of movement, right? But what I might not realize is I'm able to enjoy that life in part because, you know, the police are doing their job out of sight. I don't see it happen. You know, I don't see it. So I think there are cultural structures that operate like that, which it's easy for us to dismiss or say aren't important because we can't directly ourselves see the benefit that they that they have to society. With religion, you mentioned, and it is true, uh, libertarians can be somewhat antagonistic to religion sometimes. Um, uh, but understanding it's a cultural force, but also it's going down uh, mm -hmm. in in Western world at least. Or I don't know about uh, maybe developing world, but at least in the Western world, is going down a lot. And do we kind of see a one to one? Correlation of the less religious a society becomes, the more we see depression and suicide and things like this go up, or is it a little bit more messy than that? There is that relationship. It is messy because it, when you're doing those large level um, analysis, it's, it's hard to get cause and effect, right? But it is true that the more developed and affluent countries are more secular and score lower. On, on meaning in life. So, for instance, the Harvard University Human Flourishing Project recently published a paper comparing the United States to other countries such as China and, and Mexico and Cambodia and um, some others. And they found that the, the U.S. scored highest on economic and material security is scored lowest on other indicators of human flourishing such as social connection and meaning in life. So that pattern is 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 generally – True, but what I, you know, but what some of my recent research has found is, is I think a, a challenge to the idea that Western society is becoming more secular, which is at the same time as religion is decreasing, we find that all sorts of other um, kind of magical and supernatural beliefs are increasing. So, the less religious a country is, the more people are likely to believe in witchcraft and clairvoyance and um, aliens, you know, monitoring human behavior. The would you, horoscopes, would you consider horoscopes? Yeah, there's a whole, and, and this happens in the most secular parts. With so you can compare countries, and you can look within countries, and in the most secular areas of the country, you see, you know, the greatest consumption of New Age related products. Well, that's like, yeah, that's not that big of news, but I no, guess it, I mean, yes, San Francisco has always been the place to go find the best right. horoscope readers, and probably harder to find a church. I would imagine, right? And so, and also within individu individuals, so people who go to church less frequency are more likely to believe in ghosts and that people can communicate with the dead. So, um, 
I think spirituality, like these other traits we've talked about, is also distributed and 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 not something people necessarily um, you know choose. Like some people are just more spiritual than others, just like some people are just more extroverted than others. And when in our more individualistic society, when people move away from shared religious spaces that channel that kind of spirituality, I mean, give people like you know a, a space to do that in kind of community ways. You get more kind of individualistic approaches to well, I'm into horoscopes, and this other person's into healing crystals, or this other person's into UFOs, or or whatever. But what's interesting about that is, unlike traditional religion, those things, even though they're predicted by the need for meaning, don't appear to do a good job of providing meaning because they don't shepherd people towards each other, right? They you know they they don't prom- they don't um, promote the type of interdependent community life that seems to help people really feel like they matter. You don't have you don't have mass tarot readings. You you tarot read one on one. You don't you right. don't put like a whole congregation and read the tarot. Is that because so one thing that seems to me to be different about we think about kind of traditional religions and the the sort of beliefs that encompass those and then the things that you just described belief in ghosts, beliefs in aliens, <clears throat> healing crystals and whatever is the the beliefs both both sets of beliefs are making call them like empirical or metaphysical claims about stuff in reality right like so it's there is a thing that's god or there are crystals that actually have these properties but but the difference is that the the traditional religions the beliefs are also about i mean i guess directly meaning stuff like i exist for a purpose, I was created. We share this. I get direction from this. Like I get, you know, there's a moral structure and a way of life. Whereas the healing crystals either heal me or they don't, but they don't really tell me like how I should treat my kids. That's right. Yeah. So that I, I, you use the right word, structure. I think because the the more successful beliefs seem to have a moral structure. Right. They give you dictates for what's good and bad behavior. And, you know, they give you some sense of duty to others. And so what I think happens in these kind of new age spiritual, you know, beliefs and practices is it's people trying to fill some kind of spiritual void, right? There's something pulling them towards ideas that are beyond kind of the empirical understanding of the world that, you know, they have a curiosity towards. It doesn't necessarily mean they're hardcore believers because we, we tend to think black and white that people just believe or they don't believe. Well, our research suggests it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Like people vary in how open they are to belief. So there's a lot of people that are skeptical about you know certain religious ideas, but still have a side of them, you know, kind of a a creative, spiritual, sort of explorative side of them that's like, hey, I like to you know I like to take a little leap of faith and think about these things, even though there's not you know concrete evidence for them. And so it seems like people are going in these types of directions because they feel that pull. But if that isn't coupled with these other, you know, kind of moral structures, it's not clear that they get a lot of meaning from them. Does this then entail so if the the problems that come along with the declining religious called affiliation or attendance or participation in in these structured things, um, that the loss of meaning 
would seem then to have less to do with the nature of super of holding supernatural beliefs mm -hmm. because otherwise like the switch to crystals or ghosts or whatever would seem to replace it and more to do with what you described the the structure and the the shared values and the the moral precepts and so on does this mean then that um that we could as as we kind of increasingly secularize in the sense of maybe like not seeing the supernatural beliefs as true, that this might – we might mitigate some of that less by switching to healing crystals and more like I'm thinking of the rise of like stoicism is really hip mm -hmm. right now and meditation. and meditation or like secular kind of rough Buddhism or whatever where you, you're pulling that sort of structure and shared values but jettisoning or is it that – that when people give up their religious structure and they're shifting over to the supernatural, it's that what we what we're wired for is belief in supernatural stuff, and it just happens that some of the supernatural stuff happen to have these other structures that were helpful. Yeah, I it's it's difficult to know for sure. I had a book come out last year called Supernatural Death, Meaning, and the Power of the Invisible World, where I really you know spent a lot of time trying to get at this and and you know we did a bunch of research on it but you know one thing that that developed out of that that was kind of interesting is I ended up getting invited to go give talks at a number of like secular humanist kind of atheist groups like the Michael Shermer kind of Yeah crowd. yeah Yeah so and I I was on Shermer's um, podcast yeah. But um, yeah, so I ended up going and giving these talks, and one of the one of the interesting experiences that I had is on multiple times, somebody in the during the question and answer period, there would be somebody in the audience, usually a, a woman, which is noteworthy because most of these audiences are, are male. Um, it seems like males are more into that kind of stuff, um, but would ask, "Why can't we pull it off?" We've tried all these efforts to have a secular replacement for church. There's been all these humanist groups and atheist groups that have essentially said, hey, we want to have the community function of church where we get together and have potlucks and do things. Unitarianism. Right? And she's like, but it doesn't really seem to – from her experience and, you know, like I said, this happened that, you know, it wasn't just her. This same scenario played out in slightly different ways in multiple talks. But why can't – why can't it seem – why can't we seem to pull it off in quite the way that works for church and I you know I don't know the the answer to that and it could be part of it is these individual differences like it could be that the types of people who are more oriented towards more traditional religious structures um are just more reliable people <laughs> in a lot of ways right they just more they just plug in more and they do what they're told to do they're just you know they follow their moral duties and they're like this is what I'm supposed to do everyone's supposed to show up and bring food and and all that whereas the people who are a little bit more fringe are um, less reliable. I don't know. But there does seem to be something that it's hard to replace. We haven't really figured out, it seems, how to replace these ideas that do are, are supernatural, these associations that have supernatural components um, with purely secular versions of them, if that makes sense. Well, it's interesting because that goes well to what my next question is, which is the this observation has been made and I think it's overplayed sometimes, especially by opponents saying that, well, first of all, certain types of Marxism or extreme socialism can operate almost on a religious level. And of course, the Soviet Union was trying to get rid of religion and replace it with a completely secular, you know, environmentalism and, 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 and the next one's environmentalism. And I, and I, and 
you don't want to say, oh, environmentalism is a religion, but there are ways you could be environmentalist that at least seem to have many elements. For, for example, pieties uh, and sort of kind of heresy. There's a there's definitely a clean, cleanliness or non-cleanliness, whether or not you, uh, you know, recycle your drinking water or whatever, plastic straws, all these things, and finding extreme meaning. And if you watch protests, for example, uh, in front of these places where a bunch of young people are getting together and cavorting, and yeah. some of them actually looks like, uh, you know, they're dancing in the streets, and it looks almost like you'd see a, put a, you could put a bonfire in the middle and they could yeah. be dancing around it. That doesn't, you know, seem to have an overt spiritual supernatural component, but it's bringing people together in some sense. And maybe that's one reason why, other than like different than other political policy subjects, that one seems to be the one where people get really, really, really upset, almost in a religious fervor. No, I think that's true. And I, you know, so two things. One, I don't know, but I'm not entirely sure there's not a supernatural component. Well, there's a guy. There's like a Gaia thing. Yeah, there is a. And again, it's it's a it's on a continuum because it's not. No one's up there saying something like explicitly supernatural, but there is sort of a proclivity towards seeing nature as having agency, right, or having feelings or feeling pain, or you you do see this kind of bubble up. Um, But in addition to that. The what you just the scene you just described does seem very spiritual. In the same way, there's a lot of secular things that are spiritual. Like if you go to a concert and you just let the mu- music move you, you're you're not thinking rational about things. You're just you're just letting the music move you, right? You're 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 letting your intuitive side out, right? And these types of spiritual experiences in general involve that type of intuitive cognition, just like love does, right? You don't. Most people don't. I don't know. I can't speak for you. <laughs> Most people, when they, you know, when they say they love their wife or their girlfriend or their husband, or um, they don't have a list in front of them with pros and cons, right? They haven't rationally gone through and said, "Here's the five things I like about you, and here's the three things I don't." So I guess on, you know, in total. I have positive feelings towards you. Objectivists a, might do that, but, yeah, but most people, you're right. But it's a it's an intuitive feeling, and so but that's one of the problems I think with these environmentalist movements is what you need, which of course other people have made this point, is you need a rational analysis of how to solve pressing issues, right? And when people let the the spirit, for lack of a better word, is, you know, let the spirit overwhelm them and just follow their intuition and their feelings and get caught up in these types of, you know, some of these things are, you know, borderline cult-like. They're not able to make, I think, you know, rational decisions and and move in a direction that's actually going to help us solve these problems. Just to clarify, what do you mean by spiritual and how is it different if it is different from religious? Yeah, yeah. So – Religion is more of the actual dogma and association, right? So if you say that you're a, a Catholic or a Baptist or a, a Buddhist or a Muslim, right? So it's a specific set of tradition. There are certain like kind of formal parameters, right? Where spiritual to me is the more psychological, you know, the intrapsychic component of that. So and that can be measured, you know, at the religiosity can be measured at the individual level and does highly correlate with spirituality but um but i think of you know i think of spirituality as more within the individual 
and then how they connect that, um, how you know how they express that is often through these more formal religious channels. Not always, but you know that's that's the type of thing that seems to you know connect people into interdependent communities. Is we all have this kind of spiritual band, or you know most people have this kind of spiritual bandwidth, and how do we sh- you know, how do we connect that in a shared narrative? Um, which again, I think might be important for meaning because a big predictor of meaning, if not the biggest predictor, is feeling that you matter to others, right? That you have a that people rely on you and you rely on them. So, if we look at the trend lines, as we point out, I, I don't see, at least in the immediate future, say in Finland, which I think it might be the highest in Europe, you know, of. of Atheism, I don't see that that's going to be reversing uh, in the in the coming years. And so, if we if there's some people, I know some of my friends are this way too. That if we see this increasing drop in organized religion, some of it being replaced by spiritualism, but without the mm-hmm. the, the community and, and sort of togetherness that comes with religion, um, is that something we should be kind of worried about overall? That we we have sort of traditional forces that have established institutions and they've evolved to you know maybe be better, like the Catholic Church or something. You know, it was horrible, but it's evolved to be a little bit more predictable and better than it was. Or we could have something like Marianne. Williamson coming up and with her with with a not evolved you know to replace some of the Catholic Church so I have with weird beliefs and and having people grab onto that uh, and overall if we see this sort of diversification of spiritualism and these different types of things taking the place of religion does, do you see that having sort of negative effects for freedom and and you know lack of anxiousness and living good meaningful lives. Yeah, so it's always easier, of course, to you know pick apart the past than predict, yes, of course. predict yeah, the yeah, future. Of course. But yeah, I do think it's a concern because there there does seem to be reason to believe that um, for many people, if they don't have you know all the things you just described in a well organized community structure that helps them, you know, regulate their lives in in predictable ways in some space that they will often turn to some other version of it, even if it's not a, a supernatural version. So they will, you know, want more government in their lives, right? So I think libertarians in particular should be worried about this 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 meaning challenge. Um, because most people want to, you know, want some kind of you know external structure that helps helps make their lives make sense. And there is some evidence that um, the less people believe in God, the more they believe in the government. <laughs> and so, you know, people – when people feel, you know, alienated or lonely or that life is chaotic or unpredictable for various reasons, not just existential stuff. There could be economic reasons, environmental fears, whatever the case may be. Um, they will, you know, often sacrifice freedom in the service of of security. And this is, you know, before empirical psychologists, this is a long history of existential thinkers thinking about this tension between, you know, between freedom and security and, you know, that balancing act where it seems to be where meaning can be sustained at some level is when you have enough freedom um, where people have self-determination, right? People don't like to be, you know, oppressed or controlled or dominated in any society. Um, It's not just a Western idea. Um, But... When people have so, you know, when there's so much freedom, and then the other structures that help, you know, the scaffold, the natural, organic, cultural scaffolding that helps 
people manage that freedom in, in, in organized and predictable ways, when that starts to erode, then you start to see more more chaos, I guess. And um, and that's when you might get this backlash of people wanting more. Well, like I think you guys might know the numbers more than I do, but there's a lot of young people that don't think democracy is that important. I think and, it's over. Well, they think socialism. There's a high, socialism polls really polls really high with young people. Democracy, yeah. I'm not so sure. It's uh, declining. It's declining. I think. Yeah, I, I I have actually the. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's um, but it's still it's definitely it's, going up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I think that is uh, that is a, a legitimate a legitimate concern. Then, how do we thread that? Needle because so we don't, you know, so like it's sitting here at the Cato Institute, like we don't want to radically increase the size of government and especially in the ways that it seems like people want when they're feeling destabilized and meaning these are not like they're not they're asked for they're more good government ag agricultural uh, programs or something. Yes. And but on the other hand, like if if part of the declining say religiosity is because people increasingly like just don't find this particular set of like metaphysical claims true. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be maybe we don't necessarily want to be in the position of saying, well, we should just like convince them that they are in order to instill meaning. Yeah. Uh, plus, that seems like that would be awfully difficult to do. These yeah. trends seem quite strong. So, how do you? What can you do without going to either of those extremes? We, we invite everyone to Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many friends who go to Burning Man for that kind of spiritual relief. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but not totally. Yeah, no, yeah, I think the, I think one of the challenges is in your example of of religion is, I, I think you could imagine in the past that there's a certain amount of, you know, if if we think spirituality, for instance, varies between people somewhat naturally, well, then that's probably always been the case, right? And so in the past, you might have where there are people going to church who don't have varying levels of belief. Right? But they have to go to church, but they have probably to. under legal penalty. Yes. Yeah, or at least certainly professional. I mean, yes. if, you know, who's going to who's going to hire you or visit your business, place of business or whatever if you're if you're an apostate, right? So you know, there is that, and 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 I think we would agree that that's not necessarily good. Um, but there is some level, I think, of people submitting to a shared narrative, even if they don't necessarily believe it. That where it's it's well, this isn't necessarily. I'm not necessarily all in on this, but I respect this community practice. And I think one of the things that happens in our extremely individualistic societies, we have more and more people that are not only saying this isn't for me. But they want to police other people, right? They want to say, well, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. And I'm not going to participate and I don't want it recognized. And I just saw a story the other day about – I think it was in Chicago or somewhere in Illinois where some school was canceling the Halloween you know, the Halloween celebrations out of concern for religious minorities. And then it was actually some immigrants, some Muslim immigrants who were in this – were featured in this article. They were mad. They were like, this is the one of the things – that makes us feel like we're American, right? That we like being part of this. And, you know, I experienced this when I lived in, in I lived in the UK for a little while. I worked in a research center over there and we our kids went to a very international school. Most of the kids there, English wasn't their primary language, so a lot of kids from Pakistan. And my wife is friends with a lot of these, you know, Muslim moms and around Christmas time, you know, like a 
like a good American woman, she was very sensitive about not, you know, about being politically correct. And so she didn't want to say Merry Christmas or how do you approach this? And and so she just asked one of, you know, one of her friends, she says, well, what do I say? And the lady laughed and she said, you know, this was a Muslim woman. She laughed. She's like, you Americans are so sensitive. Like if you came to Pakistan, you're just going to have to you're going to have to work around our traditions, right? And she's like, this is England. It's a Christian, you know, she was like, it's a Christian country. Of course, now it's really not. But but our kids went to a Church of England school, right? And everyone, they had a Christmas, you know, play that they did at the church. And there were kids from all backgrounds and all religions. You know, you didn't have to participate in it. And a couple of Muslim kids didn't, but a lot did. And so, you know, I think it's it's in this culture, we're just so sensitive about everyone has to believe everything that they do or challenge everything that they don't and as opposed to you know kind of going in on you know participating with things that might not be our personal preference thank you for listening if you enjoy free thoughts you can find our free thoughts discussion group on facebook or on reddit at r slash free thoughts podcast you can follow us on Twitter at FreeThoughtPod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.